everyone, welcome back to Left Page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. I am joined, as always, by my great friend and social scientist, Leon. Hello, Leon. Hey, Frank, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Really, really glad to be here today. Because today, we have a very special episode on our hands, and alongside a great guest. We will be talking about Marge Pierce's uh, 1976 utopia novel, Woman on the Edge of Time. And to join us in talking about this great book, we have Professor Elton Furlaneto of the Federal University of Mato Grosso do Sul. He is dedicated to English literature, especially science fiction, and plenty of matters of translation. Notably, uh, he is the translator of the very first Brazilian edition of Woman on the Edge of Time, released earlier this year. And alongside being a great researcher and translator, he's also a very good friend, and we are happy to have him on board. Welcome, Elton. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Leon, for having me here. It's very nice to be a uh, part of the left page, and I'm sure it's going to be a fun time for us to talk about something that I'm passionate about. Yeah, I feel like those are always the best at once. Yes. We hope uh, we can do it justice. Uh, and if not, you can school us. It's fine. No, we'll exactly. Hold back. <laughs> That's also why you're here. Precisely. Before we, we get into, into that, the nitty-gritty and a lot of the fun stuff surrounding Marge, Marge Pierce and this book, I want to just give like a, a you know, brief plot summary because there's, there's, there's so much. There's so much. There's um, a lot, yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot quite a lot. It's a good and thing. I, I definitely <laughs> will not be able to do the whole narrative justice like this, but it's just to like, what is this book about? Yeah. And uh, the, the broader narrative of this book involves Connie Consuelo, a poor Mexican-American woman frequently who, who has recently lost everything, uh, including the guardianship of her own daughter, and has to live, not for the first time, a literal horror story inside a 1970s mental institution. Where things start going differently, she's contacted by a person in the future, Luciente, who is able to bring Connie into this future utopia and have her understand how the future can be different, and the role Connie can take in preparing the ground for it. Spacing the narrative between present and future with a growing storyline or in the 1970s of biochemical implants that seek to control social deviance, you know, like rebellious women, non-conforming people, gay men, you know, the usual, yeah. usual regular stuff. We then end up with uh, escape attempts where Connie ultimately embraces her role as part of the struggle and the conflict and ultimately really the war for a different, a better world as she strikes back at her captors and controlling doctors and hopefully escapes. Uh, so yeah, that's that's this this book briefly summarized to the best of my abilities. That's my fault. That's not Leon. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that's this book. Uh, no, I was going to say that it, it's something fun, but I, I would say that it's not simple. And the book is um, filled with different, I think, different layers. And I guess that's why it's so difficult to kind of like uh, make a proper summary of it. Because after you finish your summary, you say, okay, I left out a lot of things. <laughs> and I guess it's something intentional when she wrote that. She she wanted uh, to give us this kind of difficulty of uh, um, summarizing the idea. I mean, it's a yeah. simple story or a simple plot, but at the same time, it's not so simple. 
there's so much to that. Like I, I cut out pretty much everything that happens in the future mm -hmm. uh, for the sake <laughs> of like, so this is what this is about. And uh, now we're going to talk about that. Exactly. No, but to touch upon everything that happens in this book, then we would almost do the audiobook version of this book. Like mm -hmm. that's like this is the type of book that uh, I think that's where the complexity lies of this book. Complexity in a positive way, not in like criticism way. Like, oh, it's too difficult. No, it's uh, it's not. It's a very sci-fi book, but not in like your hard sci-fi way. Yeah, there are hard sci-fi elements maybe, but it's not. You don't have to worry about like space travel. And despite that, we talk about one of the classic elements of sci-fi, namely time. It is mm -hmm. not like a bootstrap paradox type of book, or you know, some other tropes that we usually encounter in sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. Even though some people would say that uh, they wouldn't even consider this book like sci-fi because all these, for example, trips to the future that our protagonist takes, in fact, they could be seen as some kind of like um, hallucination. And because yeah. she is in a mental hospital, it, it yes. would like make sense for a person looking from the outside. And everything that she constructs in this hallucination like using the materials she has that's why a lot of people see a lot of mirroring in uh, what happens in that future like some characters of the future could be identified as some people from her present um, that could be like transformed somehow by her unconscious mind yeah I don't agree with that. I mean, some people <laughs> would say that, but I don't. I think okay. it's like, I, I'm, I'm a sci-fi guy, so I totally agree with, she's traveling to the future and I just yeah. buy this <laughs> yeah. and, and I, I, I just hold to that. So a very quick mention of cyborgs and everything. So I feel like uh, it's definitely a sci-fi book. Yes. And I don't know, it's uh, definitely hopeful, maybe. It is, at least it tries to, like the foreword says, I found very interesting and is a great like primer for this book, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, like the forward says, so, like it's it tries to illustrate an an alternative, which is like the main task, in my humble opinion. But Frank, you probably have more to say about this than I do. Uh, but it's main task of utopianism, like to you know to speculate mm -hmm. the <laughs> to to use the well well trodden term to speculate this future. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think you know I I, I was talking to Liam before we started recording, right? Like the, the, the classic work of uh, utopian studies, like the Tom Moylan's Demand the Impossible, where he sets out this idea of like the critical utopia that reinvents utopianism and utopian studies and utopian literature. And, you know, he sets up four main novels, which would represent this new take on utopian literature. And one of them, I, I do not stop talking about it for good reason, is The Dispossessed. And one of the other three, is this book. So I, I was really excited to read it. And I, for good reason, I think. Like, I was really... I really enjoyed this book. It's a very... It's a much more complex book on a lot of other angles than The Dispossessed. And one of them, which I think we... I'd really like to... to you know, we've spoken about this before this episode. But I, I really want us... If you could share it, and eventually we talk a bit about this uh, in terms of the language and the translation mm -hmm. of it, because, you know, the translation, I think that's fantastic, because, you know, I read Dispossessed many times, and I was like, okay, it's, it's a complex book, but the language is fairly straightforward. This book is not that. This book <laughs> has a much more dedicated attention to a distinct kind of speaking and language, 
in a way that's like, oh, okay, this this is a this is serious business here. Which is not to say it isn't in the dispossessed, but it's more in passing. Where this one is like, okay, let's do this. Exactly. I guess it's something related to this idea of projecting to the future. And I guess all science fiction books that project some kind of future, they should take into consideration that language changes and we are not speaking the same way we were like, I don't know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. It's it's ever changing. So uh, they should take into consideration that language will be very different. But if you take, for example, Asimov's uh, foundation and uh, you know, it's like thousands of years in the future and people are just like, <laughs> they are talking the same way. So basically what we are going to see is that some people will just ignore this idea of change and they will make uh, this choice of making the book like more understandable or more accessible to people. And other yeah. people will say like when they change, because I think, for example, the, the most a radical example and even more radical than I think Woman on the Edge of Time is uh, Clockwork Orange. And uh, some people will definitely will be baffled and they will not read it because they will say like, it's impossible to read it or I have to look at uh, uh, some kind of like glossary if they have one um, in, in for, like future editions, like not the original one, but they had to create some kind of like glossary to include and, and make uh, the language more accessible. So for a lot of people, this kind of like taking into consideration that uh, they will take it to a kind of extreme and I think Marge Pierce is in between. She thinks like she, she understands that language will have will change somehow, but she doesn't. She's not so radical as um, she could have been, for example. And I think that's an idea that she didn't want to to like alienate some people from reading mm -hmm. the story because they would be like uh, too, I don't know, too shocked or or too turned off i don't know by the by the idea of of this so alien language or or that language was so so she explains a lot of these changes especially because we have these people that uh, this person visiting the future and there is a kind of guide so a lot of times like uh or the first chapters are also this kind of linguistic explanation like we have some kinds of linguistic explanations of how things change and sometimes like oh no this we didn't change this so don't worry it's just the same so that's something to to consider and one aspect that i think uh, i don't know if i'm ju jumping ahead here go ahead <laughs> uh, talking about the translation but one of the problems that i had is that the translation to Brazilian Portuguese is a little more radical than the original, and it 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 it's it is so because in English uh, a lot of words, especially adjectives and, and nouns, are not are neutral. They they are not. Yeah. Uh, they do not have any marks of like masculine or feminine. And in in Portuguese, I cannot do that. It's a much more gendered language. So yeah. when you read your like. When you read the translation, I, I, my editor felt this way. Like she said, no, it's too much. People are going to be <laughs> like scared. And I was like, but if we don't do it, like it, it, it sounds or, or it seems more because in English she doesn't, she didn't have to deal with this. 
but maybe yeah. she would have to if she was writing in a language that was more gendered and meant to do that. She, she just worked more with pronouns, and I think she concentrated more there. But as I said, like in Portuguese, adjectives and even nouns, uh, for example, you say nurse, and then it's it's okay in English. It can be like a male nurse or female nurse. But in, in Portuguese, you have to say like enfermeira or enfermeiro, and you have to, you know, like in the word you mark. And sometimes it was difficult because it was not necessarily the language of the future that had this more, let's say, stylized way. But sometimes it's the narrator talking about the present. Uh, like, for example, this example, she's in a hospital. And so she mentions, a, 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 or I mean, the narrator mentions a nurse. And I have no idea if it's a male nurse or female nurse, if uh, there is no context telling me about that. Yeah, yeah. Now, Frank and I often talk about like the ambiguity of the English language, which is what I hate and love about it at the same time. <laughs> It's, you know, like, but uh, yeah, no, feel free to, like, uh, I know how you feel, Frank, about the gendered aspect. I, I, I mean, when I was reading it, it's like, I, again, I, I knew the plot vaguely before reading the book because, you know, it, it so showed up in critical studies and stuff. So it's like, okay, I know what this book is vaguely about or generally about, but I didn't know how it was written. So to read it was a pretty distinct experience. And it was a very interesting one to, like, realize, like, oh, we are going really radically. And I think like you're perfectly justified on that choice because there's, it, it says textually, that's like, oh no, we, we changed all the pronouns. And it's like, okay, here we go. Uh, yeah. So it's like, that's, that's enough for you uh, to, to really like go on because, you know, in, in English, it's a lot easier. Whereas in, in Portuguese, like, yeah, in order to achieve that same result, you got to be a lot more radical. But uh I think that's more respectful of the book. Uh, it would be more disrespectful if you didn't. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, it was a more um, uh, linguistically distinct experience than I expected. But I think for all the right reasons. Definitely. I hope so. <laughs> I bump into this a little bit because, once again, the two languages I speak for work and day-to-day -day is, is not Spanish. But I do speak Spanish sometimes because that's where my mom is from. And so, like this, this process of like this, this conversation with like non-binary people, for instance, the, this process that we have been like seeing over the uh, last few, I don't know, a couple of years at least, where people have grow, growing more conscious in within these gendered languages, I think is fascinating. And like, you know, if I'm allowed to be positive, excessively positive, I think there's a lot of utopic potential in that, in like generating these ideas together. And I think that's a more beautiful element of like the internet that I'm usually. I feel some type of way about it, but this time, this time, I think it's a good, it's a good development. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. And and there's something funny. It's a kind of like a, I don't know, fun fact or or, or something. <laughs> but you mentioned Spanish, and she uses a lot of Spanish, especially at the beginning of the book, because she's trying to give like uh, the characterization of of Connie as a a, a Mexican. In fact, she is American, but but. Uh, she comes from this Mexican family and she uses the language, but she even talks about like her brother that's trying, like even changes names because he wants to get away from this kind of heritage. And we have a certain moment when she visits the future in which she finds a character, Para, 
that is uh, kind of like acting as a judge and, and they talk because uh, she's originally from the region where Texas was and she feels like she uses some Spanish. But it is only like 20 years, almost 20 years later when she wrote not a sequel to Woman on the Edge of Time, but a, a similar book, which is He, She and It. And the language in Hishinit, especially the language of people like from the slums or, or she kinds it, she calls it glop, like megalopolis, and, and it's reduced to glop. And the, the glop language mixes English and Spanish uh, as a kind of like pidgin. And, and that's something interesting, like the language of the future in Woman on the Edge of Time is not, for example, mixed. It's, it's a different yeah. type of English, but it's English. Um, mostly, and uh, what she thinks, like she, she, and she says, no, people still speak Spanish in different places or regions where Spanish is the kind of culture they choose, and it's something interesting that in the other way, like when she thinks about the future in some other context, she's going to think about Spanish and English, like kind of merging into this pidgin language. So, so it takes an, a different level of importance. Definitely. No, I, the thing that I was, uh, I find that in that indeed very interesting. And the thing that I was admittedly very nervous uh, of when entering this novel, uh, having Googled the uh, writer and like the, uh, seeing that I also with her share a part of uh, eth ethnic stuff that we will not get into right now. But I was worried because there was, I, as far as I could tell, she is not Latino or Latina in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And there is a strong presence of uh, like Latin people. Like it's it's the it's the main culture that is dissected, analyzed, and like uh, used for her her uh, prose. And uh, I was nervous, like oh no, <laughs> like please please don't do this wrong because it, it it has been there were so many examples in which this this went atrociously by like non Latin people talking about Latin people. And I will exactly. say like despite some minutia here and there, I think this was for the seventies especially. No offense, but. For the seventies, like this, this, this went a lot better than I had any right to expect. Mm -hmm. And how you guys felt about it? Some, some, like uh, I don't know, Frank. Do you do you want to to? <laughs> um, no, no, go go ahead. <laughs> okay, no, I, I was going to say like I, I understand this uh, preoccupation. I think with the Leon show, and one of the the possibilities of of me i i have thought about something similar and even questioned uh march Piercy about that and she was very politically involved engaged in in um in the 60s late 60s and early 70s but she got sick so she had to withdraw and, and literature was basically the way she she felt she could be political and everything, but she has always felt like felt connected to different groups of people, and she she had always like because she, she speaks Spanish, she she's fluent in Spanish, and um, she had friends that were uh, from Mexican origin and other uh, different places from from Latin America, and for for that. I think uh, Marge Percy, she, she always felt this way. Like for, for her, even later, she's going to be more, uh, during this, like the 70s, not so much, but later in life, she got very involved in this uh, Jewish, uh, with her Jewish upbringing and, and uh, her, again, like everything related to that. So she, she took, uh, she was distant uh, from this kind of like thing that, is related to her childhood and her family and etc. But she kind of like 
uh, got into it. And because of that, and being a Jew, she, she said she suffered like from bullying and other things at school. And, um, and she has always felt uh, very angry at injustice and racism and everything. So she said, I always fought for racism. So I, I'm a white woman. I understand that, uh, you know, like it's maybe not the place for me to be, but at the same time, racism has always like been a sore, something like, you know, uh, something very uh, dear to me, like in, dear in the sense of like, I, I want to fight it. Uh, so it's kind of the opposite is, uh, of what I said. But anyway, uh, <laughs> she has always been concerned about uh, this idea. And because of that, she wanted to deal with this subject. So we have characters that are black. We have characters that are uh, Latino. We, we have characters from different uh, backgrounds. And I think she was always like uh, very respectful to them, and, and she even like uh, considered them. Uh, and, and there is no kind of patronizing idea of of you know taking their place to talk about them. Definitely. Now the the uh, history of like uh, Jewish uh, synchronicity in like American n neighborhoods is honestly fascinating, and you can like. You can make a whole podcast out of that, so I can't get into it right now. But like, it, it's honestly fascinating, and like, especially like the '60s and the '70s, Jewish people were at the far forefronts of like civil rights stuff, and like, you know, they were all very present. And like, a thing that I very much lament because I love that part of history and I strongly identify with that. Uh, although I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not Orthodox Jewish, but like, still, I, I still, uh, Marcy was, I believe, uh, from an Orthodox Jewish community from a mother's side. I believe I thought I read on Wikipedia. I'm not 100 percent sure, but um, but yeah, no, that's definitely in that age. I'm very happy to see that, like this, uh, like especially don't want to like say only the Jewish people far far from it, but like Jewish people are in American context are in the 60s and 70s very well known for having these like cross racial bounds and so forth and so on. And I'm very happy that like uh, what I find interesting then is that nowadays I almost feel like. We once again, like I said earlier, like I'm very cautious when I see this. I'm not negatively like I never made up my mind right away, far from it. But I was like, "Ooh, please, I hope this goes well." But um, I feel like we have kind of grown uh, towards this. Um, oh, how to say this politely? Um, <laughs> this this very f fragile disposition towards like, "Oh, you're not allowed to talk about this." You're not mm -hmm. as, as as a white Jewish woman. You're not allowed to talk about Latin, and I. Personally, once again, you might just point out some things that are like not amazing, but this is not offensive. You can just write this book, and it's fine. I think I, as far as as a non-Latin person can judge that, by the way. So exactly, I, I think about that. One of the things that is most interesting and really well done, I think, is how in the, you know, in, in the depiction of these various future communities and this future reality, we have. Um, the, the, it's you know the, there's these continued ethnicities and these continued groups and there's a really big focus on like indigenous groups and indigenous beliefs and cultures that are continued uh, to think of in, in recent terms it's like no the the future will be and you know the, the struggle for a better future will be indigenous or it won't be like this is already at the forefront here like the future depicted is deeply indigenous in, in terms of like interconnecting those cultures. It's like, no, these, these cultures continue to be present, continue to be living and strong and growing and changing. And 
So there's a real no, a real sophistication in, in understanding it's like, you know, these things aren't like all frozen in time or extinct or anything. No, these are living, breathing cultures. What if, you know, to think of a better future implicates that they are continue they continue to flourish. And I think that's that was one of the coolest things about like the, this this future depiction. That's like you know the, the, it's an indigenous future as well, amongst many other things. And that's really really nice to think of like how that is a preoccupation still and something that has I, I guess in, in recent decades become clearer and more evident. But that's like um, you know it, to read a book like this. It's like you know activists and writers and, and thinkers and, and activists who were engaged in this struggle were already aware of that. Like it's this connection between this history that we have. This like uh, this this struggle. Like it's not new. Like it's it dates quite a while. And like the, this book is a good example of this as well. I think uh, something that I, I I find very interesting is the is idea of uh, taking culture and dissociating it from uh, let's say uh, a specific type of, uh, of, for example, normally culture is very associated with a certain type of ethnicity, for example. Mm -hmm. And we are going to see that they suggest in this future that you can choose whatever culture you want uh, to organize your life. So different villages will follow different beliefs and different types of uh, uh, cultural rituals and cultural aspects and even like Connie says oh so you can have some kind of like I don't know black Chinese or or you know something and then she says yes here it's possible people are going to choose collectively which type of uh, cultural elements they would like to have here like I don't know organizing their lives and if you do not like that type of culture, you can move to a different one. So there is this freedom for you to navigate and find the one that you associate more with. But basically, they are going to raise kids. They are going to organize their community according to a certain set of rules. And normally, those rules are associated with a certain culture that will have like precedence there. And they are not necessarily, for example, uh, physical, like uh, if, if you take, for example, a DNA test, uh, they are not going to be like uh, necessarily like indigenous or, or, or sons and daughters and granddaughters of those original people. But they are going to still anyway uh, choose that type of life and somehow they think it works better uh, if you do this way, you are not determined physically by the culture you you want to have, and you have different possibilities. But it, at the same time, it doesn't, for, at least for me, it doesn't sound like some kind of a uh, melting pot uh, that creates some kind of goo or a homogeneous goo and and you know, like you take this from this culture, that from that culture, and it, it is completely like some kind of, uh, you know, celebration of a, of a, a multitude of cultures. I don't, I don't think that is the what Marge intended, and I don't feel that is the result of that, but it's at the same time something interesting. Definitely. No, 
I find the notion about um, they do have this, and I'm, I'm wondering if I remember this correctly because Frank and I were talking about this, uh, that they do talk about then race real quick about like yeah we were afraid of racism therefore we like uh, interbred and and stuff like that and like that's one of those things of like oh that's very seventies that's like an idea we don't really talk to anymore it was very popular about like this progressive movement between. I might be wrong about this. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was very popular. Like it gained a lot of steam in the eighties and nineties. A lot of comedians were saying it like, like, Oh, in the future, we'll all be like light Brown orange or something Like people were like joking about like, Oh, we are all going to intermix and so forth and so on. And they had a very optimistic idea and not like, not, not as once again, I, I'm not, I don't want to say harmful or whatever, because it isn't harmful to think like that, but it is maybe uh, inadvertently, erasing certain once again risk of erasing cultural practices and so forth like oh we're all going to go towards this centralized homogenous culture and that has never been what's utopia utopic for me like it's exactly like for me uh like the utopic idea would be education and like thoroughly derooting like race from any sign kind of scientific thing whatever that's that's my utopia for instance and like i thought like oh that that's interesting because she does seem to understand all these the intricacies of race and ethnicity and so forth and so on. But if I recall correctly, she does have then this, in my humble opinion, a uh, bit for arts segment there. Yeah, no, I, I would say that, for example, I think what makes or complicates things is exactly this um, birth control, like birth, uh, everything related to like uh, this idea of, of being bur- born and everything is going to change to some technology that is going to yeah. take uh, hold of that. And I think uh, they, they are going to mention some or they're going to bring up some ideas of, uh, uh, well, I, uh, we, we, Keep, try to keep some kind of diverse, some some diverse type of like uh, community. So you have people from very different backgrounds and and very different like the, their uh, physical description. You you see that we have a diversity there, and I think uh, there is no uh, talk of, for example, trying to make everyone similar. In fact, they say no, we. Uh, we wa- we like variety. We we like diversity, and we want to keep it that way. It's a kind of choice that we we had, and we are going for it. Frank, I don't know if you feel uh, some type of way. I, I think, like in terms of the this, you know, this this cultural uh, and, and ethnic aspect, like it wasn't something in, in terms of what you both were mentioning. Something that I. I Notice that in that aspect as much, but one thing that I and I spoke to Elton about this before, uh, that I found mm, I don't know. I mean, I get what they what you're going for, but I'm I'm not that keen on, which is <laughs> as you were mentioning this uh, control of of reproduction and in this technological aspect, is that um, in this community, uh, the, the birth is no or natural birth as we understand it is no longer th- a thing. Uh, it's it's made a mechanical process via the brooders, where um, it's uh, uh, w- the bottom line is women no longer give birth, machines yeah. give birth, and then both men and women and non-binary people can nurture and uh, lactate and so on. In that aspect, uh, it, it is 
it is said what, what it, along the lines of like, oh, uh, women had to give up their power in order to, or their own, their sole power in order to better establish this community and this future society or these future societies. And I, I, I get it. I get the point. I don't mm-hmm. really like it because it is, it, it is a biological or technical solution to solve a sociopolitical one. Uh, and it, it feels like an easy way out, right? Okay, we, we couldn't handle have, doing this, so we need to create uh, a thingamabob, a gizmo, to solve the problem. Um, yeah. And, um, it, it, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot harder if you have to deal with those imbalances. And, uh, yeah, it's, it is interesting as a thing that the book does, but, like, I, yeah... I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like it very much. I think one of the messages that we take from it is that for you to have a for you to have a utopia, you need to have, to be a little control freak, uh, because that <laughs> was what they were having. Like uh, it was not only like birth by a machine, but for example, uh, they would choose uh, to somebody died, for example, in a certain moment during the the book, and then they decide that they are going to have that genetic material like born again uh, in a kind yeah. of like cloning or a second chance but they they do not have any idea where it's going to be or you know like they are not going to create any kind of attachment to this new person but anyway they are going to say like and it's only a reproduction of the 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 DNA and everything, the genetic material, but not necessarily it's going to be the same person because, yeah. you know, they, they are going to take that into consideration. But it shows their level of control and, and they control, like, the number of of, uh, of people of the community and that is something important. So it's mm-hmm. it's like we have been too many here in the world, so now we have to be very careful and we are taking, you know, like we're controlling that very strictly. And second, Marge Piercy herself said that if she was writing the book today, she would change that. So she kind of (laughs) gave it a second thought. And she said, well, something that I don't agree with uh, that I wrote like some 40 years ago is (laughs) this idea of uh, uh, women giving up birth so she said maybe it would be something uh, mixed. So there would mm-hmm. be brooders and brooders yeah. could be used, but at the same time, it would be not exclusively brooders to give birth and yeah. uh, there, there would be no change in, in some kind, I don't know, physiological. It's, that's not kind of explained. It's just said like, yeah. we don't give birth anymore. As women, we just uh, gave up that power and it's not explained how it was done or how it works if they have you know some kind of like dna change or or some mm-hmm. kind of like medicine that they take um but again uh that was something march Prissy would change nowadays if she was writing a woman uh, nowadays she said she would not write this way yeah, i find this notion like really interesting um for like a couple of reasons i'll try to work through them uh, within a reasonable time but, um, uh, well, you can listen, dear listener, you can listen to the Harari episode if you want to know how I feel about it. technological determinism. Uh, I'm not going to do that again. Um, <laughs> we've already talked about that enough. But I do find this, uh, this element of, like, the, uh, the breeding tanks or whatever they are precisely interesting because they are depicted in a mostly positive way. 
yes, we yeah. have our critical notions about them, as you know, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But it is in a positive way, and like there are so many, so much in sci-fi about like uh, the breeding tanks, like Dune, Star Wars, what have you. Uh, like Dune has the like the X level breeding tanks and like so forth and so on, which are horrifying. Like apparently those things are like half alive, half machine, and like they, they are literal horror. And I, I find it fascinating that this is then like by large like you know utopic, like uh, at least. Uh, uh, push uh, push towards like this utopic ideal like you know uh, burdens are taken away from a certain group of people within society and to mm-hmm. this uh, notion of control which is exactly uh, ironically what I did want to talk about like from a political science point of view is the challenge of utopia is that there is no utopia without um, more education like you don't have utopia without education without learning without this this element of progress and with this progress everything will gradually become more and more controllable, like exactly like you guys are saying. And um, a thing that we very briefly mentioned, but I find endlessly fascinating on the um, uh, Expanse episode, Frank, uh, mm. where we uh, talk about can humanity control more and then still be recognizably humanity without mm. not touching it. And the ideal, the, for me, the biggest conceptual challenge for Utopia is exactly that. The uh, the pro- the closer proximity to total quote unquote total maybe there's no such thing but ex- more excessive control forms of control more advanced forms of control but we then ha- may need to maintain a position of this blasé disposition towards uh, con- con- this control all these territories that are now controllable to us and and that's the only way like how we can still like you know uh, well which is like the biggest challenge for utopians in my humble opinion I don't know how you guys feel about that. That's, uh, I'm not the utopian expert here, Frank. So, how do you say something? It's <laughs> sure. Um, no, I, <laughs> no, you I, don't I, have to. No, <laughs> but you can, I'm, if you want. Uh, I'm, I'm host as well. <laughs> Should. Um, no, I, I think that's a, a key point, right? Like most utopias, uh, both you know, old and, and new, have to to wrestle with the idea of control to one degree, because, and I, I think there's no better or more amusing example, I guess. Then, um, then one not written by an act, by a a good a good uh, literary writer, but is uh, B. F. Skinner's Walden Two, um, which is this psycholo- psychologizing controlled society. Really weird book, not necessarily good to read. So I've heard <laughs> from a psychologist friend who was forced to read it. Uh, so that's fun. But anyway, uh, it, it is all about control in that book and in a lot of others like how do you control society how do you control functioning social political order economic order uh, defense security um art etc and i think that this book and, and i think it's one of the questions that we don't really see solved but that we see put towards the end of the book is there's there along the side a, a, an ongoing struggle for shall we say the the entirety of the future of the planet. Uh, the, uh, these communities still engage in an ongoing war against, like, uh, how, how do I put it, like dystopian focuses of resistance or dystopian bastions that still uh, resist, that, that follow a uh, hyper-capitalist, hyper-patriarchal form, which we get some insight as well in, in the book. But uh, th- there's that. So th- there's not the full control of the planet in, in those terms. 
but there there's a discussion at the end between different groups or groups of ideas between the, the people in these communities that are, are between the the shapers and I don't remember the name of the other one in Portuguese or in English rather but the point is that the shapers they want to shape like how individuals will be born and will exist like more carefully shaping like their genetic material how they're going to exist and so on uh, to a, a more intrinsic level whereas the the other who, who favor a more random approach of like no like we aside from you know uh, uh, extreme birth defects and you know str- more dangerous diseases and so on or, or conditions like uh, we, it's not something that we should mess with or this we should should touch right um, and this is like an issue that is being argued for and against uh, that we we see a bit and it's exactly that point right how much control do we exert how much control do we want or even think we should just because we could doesn't mean we should. Um, <laughs> and th- that is a question that this society is also asking of itself, right? We can, but should we? And I, I, I think, like, um, I don't know, to, to, to bring the dispossessed into it, I think, like, sometimes there are levels of control that that, that society is, like, pushed into that are not desirable, are not positive, are not wanted. Like, they're... I mean, one of the, the, the sequences in the, in the Dispossessed that I'm thinking of is that during one of the experiences of extreme hunger, um, at one point, the main character, Shevek, he's working in this food distribution center, and he basically needs to choose who gets rations and who doesn't. Um, and it uh, traumatizes him deeply. It's a horrific experience. He does not want to go back doing that. And it's... He says multiple times, like, it's not a choice that anyone can make or that anyone should make. And, you know, it it is control on on the matter of necessity, really. But it's not a question that is there that much in that book. It it is in this one a lot more clearer. But I feel like you're absolutely right, Leon. Uh, To struggle with an idea of utopia involves understanding what do we control and what do we don't. And well, to to, uh, to try and, and look at this process like that, like a control of space and the culture, which we see and, and history and memory there of what the past was, uh, isn't key, right? It's a cl- closed-off society. That one, and uh, th- this these ones aren't, but they are also, you know, they're, they're more distinct, they're more diverse, and so on. But they have other issues of control, right? Okay, we can alter biology and. And genetic material to this level, but should we? Can we can, but should we? And you know, there, there's an argument going on, a large scale thing that will go to like the Grand Council and so on, which is the way they they end up arguing and discussing things. And the book yeah. is aware of that. We don't get an answer by the end of the book. We don't. <laughs> and we don't. <laughs> I think that's something interesting because. Yeah, uh, the book is posing the question, and they are saying, "Well, we haven't reached a conclusion. We have different yeah. opinions here, my group of friends and I, and it's okay that we do not have a solution or an answer right away because it is something very complex and it takes time. So we think yeah. in a kind of accelerated way that we uh, uh, first she's saying, "Well, f- utopias do not have all the answers." And that's what makes it a critical utopia, because it's mm-hmm. not 
the perfect blueprint, but in fact, it's like showing, well, we are not perfect, but we are walking towards it, but it's okay. We yeah. are just walking and we still have a long way to go. So uh, first, and then she says, don't be anxious uh, and do not look or do not expect us to be like super perfect uh, because we are not going to be. And, and then there is this idea that, okay, we are dealing with control. Who is going to decide it? A central command or some kind of authority? No, everybody. We have to reach a consensus. When? Yeah. Maybe never, but we are we are trying and we are going to keep exercising this uh, way that, you know, like, and we are going to be discussing and discussing. I remember in one class, uh, a professor said uh, that one of the things that made this book boring, or for example, the boring chunks of the book would be the ones that were meetings because all the time she goes to the future at a certain, at, at the first, at the beginning, it's everything new. So it's that party, but at a certain, a certain moment in the middle of the, the, the book, or it starts to be like, she visits the future and they are having meetings and meetings and meetings. And it, she <laughs> takes her to other meetings and, and everything they decide and the, everything they're going to do, they have to have a meeting about it. And everybody has to agree, they have to reach a consensus. If they do not reach a consensus, they give a party. They, uh, you know, like they try to convince or, or or make the other people like come to their side by using different strategies. But they are always doing that. So I think that is a way like to to differentiate or or to distance it from from regular dystopias that we have a central command, we have a certain authority, or we have somebody taking the decisions. And even, for example, the, the, the example you gave of the dispossessed, Shivak had to decide individually what was going to happen. And what they show yeah. is that here, nothing is decided individually. It's always exactly. collective. It's going to take some time. We are not going to do until we convince everyone. It can take years, decades. But okay, we are patient. If we don't solve this, uh, our descendants will solve this. Uh, but anyway, uh, we are going to get there when we have a consensus. And when is that? When we force one? No, when we naturally or, or you know, like when we uh, uh, organically reach one. Yeah, oh, de definitely. I think this is something that I recognize and I, maybe it might be a bit of a stretch, but what I recognize in this is like this, this idea of like, Jewish virtue, which within Judaism, the one of the larger virtues is learning. It's uh, not just learning, but uh, I believe in like, oh, what was it again? In this rabbinical text, Ethics of the Fathers, it says that like he who is wise, he who learns from his fellow man. And putting aside this notion of incredibly gendered, uh, this this notion, the context within this uh, within this quote is being presented. It is still like this notion that we see in uh, in this book. What I would argue. And maybe there is something of this, of this Hasidic philosophy that she grew up on, represented in this. And I think also, once again, feel free to tell me if, uh, if I'm wrong here, Frank. But I feel like an important notion to establish a utopic vision is to understand that uh, the fundamental building unit of utopia is humans, is humanity, is culture, yeah. and so forth and so on. And by understanding this and understanding that humans are endlessly protein, we understand also that utopia, as she, like as you guys have been saying, is an is a process. It's not a fixed point in time and space, but rather it is it's it is a verb to to put that one off the shelf again. Um, <laughs> utopia is a verb, and so forth and so on. And yeah, I don't know. I think that this book is, even though it it, it 
how do you say this in English? Uh, it, it like takes maybe a very small misstep here and there. It's like maybe a bit uh, uneven here and there. It is still, it understands these core principles that I think are very important according to my vision. I know how you guys feel about it, but that's, you know, I think that's a very strong part of the book. No, I, I, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, no, I just to, to add, as you were saying as well, Elton, that, you know, I, I think um, what we see in, you know, in both Possess and especially in this one even more, that, you know, the, the, these are people trying to do the best as they can with what they know, what they believe and the, what they're trying to do, right? Like in, in this Possess, we have Shevek trying to stay true to what he believes for what his society stands for and what he understands to be the best the best course of action and in this we see not only that but we see how even those those positions inside of them can reach different conclusions right and that's fine like in that book we the the society so to speak was failing was had a lot of issues and had a it needed a sort of course correction whereas this one it's it has issues but it is growing, it is uh, trying to be its best society that it can be. And, you know, there's there's a lot of learning, there's a lot of unknown there. And it's a good counterpoint that's like, in, in the circumstances, like, people can come up with these different positions, at least on, on this particular issue that the book does not give an answer to. And that neither is right or wrong, but that they will decide what they want to do. Literally, like they'll decide what they will want to do, and then they it will work or it won't, and then they'll think and change it or not. And that's that's the picture we have of these societies that they will they're trying their best with what they have, what they know, and what they can, and that okay, maybe they'll decide this or that for now. It's not forever, and that's fine. No, I, I love that because. Usually within progressive leftist spaces, we are marked for like wanting to involve people and like you know uh, open up this demo this political process to as many people as possible because this is how you you know uh, the more representative the thing is usually we think the better and usually then uh, we are marked for like oh what do you want to do get a commission for everything and yes yeah <laughs> Mars says yes and I think that's good I think that's beautiful like yeah go ahead and, and things still move slower so what. Like, do you want to move nowhere fast or do you want to move somewhere slowly and method uh, meticulously? So I, I think that that's, that's amazing. Yeah, um, definitely. Sorry, go on. No, no, I, I was going to agree with you and I think it's, <laughs> Thank you. it's something interesting exactly because people say like, okay, you want a democracy, okay, you have it, but it's not going to be something interesting or, or, or exciting. It's not going to be exciting. It's boring because you have like meetings and meetings and you have to reach a consensus for you to do that. It, it takes like some rhetoric and it takes some patience and it takes, you know, some strategies. And uh, it, it's not only that, but it takes time for people to think about it, to, you know, for you to develop arguments, for you to research about it and, and then I, I think it's it's well represented in the book. I had I had a question for in fact I have two questions for you um, <laughs> oh. that are things that people normally ask me or that I don't know people already told me and I I, I wanted to see your opinions about it. Uh, the first one is some people would say that uh, we have a present so Connie is living in the present in the seventies she is in a mental hospital. 
and everything that is bad happens to her. So she loses a uh, guard of her daughter. She, she she does not have any kind of like a, a governance support. So uh, she, she's struggling and it's very difficult. And some people said, well, because the present is so dire, so difficult, that would make the future, any future, better. So the utopian aspect of the book is lost because the present is so dystopian, let's say, or, or it, like it's so pessimist. Um, and Connie is like suffers a lot. And because, now, you know, she's not only in a mental hospital, but she's going to be operated on and, and they are going to in, like put some kind of technology in her brain to, to control her. And so everything is a kind of escalation of, of bad things. And those bad things kind of make the other, like the other, the alternative better, but maybe it's forcing the hand. Do you, did you feel that? Do you want to go first, Frank, or do you? Uh... I, I can go first. I, I don't think so. And I think in particular, because, I mean, we, we see very clearly how, how Connie is resistant to a lot of the changes. And, you know, even us as readers, sometimes we, you know, we question one or another. I remember the first time I was reading, mm, I don't know. And then, you know, thinking more over it, okay, I, I see what you're going for. I, I get this a little bit more. But I think in those moments where like, oh no, th there's a lot of a lot about this that it's clearly better and like she notices that, but it's, it doesn't, for her, it's not a utopia. For, it takes a while for her to see it as a, such a good society. And I th feel like that much is closer in, in terms of like how she sees it, that it, it's a really weird place. Like, okay, it's, doesn't have plenty of the other bad stuff, but this isn't necessarily a good place. It's really weird, not, not great, really strange, really distant. Um, and then she comes to understand how how it's not as automatic, it's not immediate. And I, I think that is interesting insight into like, you know, we, in a sense, we have to learn how to live in a utopia or in a different society. And that's a part of it as well. Uh, but I, I, I resoundingly disagree that the, the, the comparison point weakens it. I think in in the struggles that Connie has understanding and appreciating or questioning aspects of the future, it becomes clear how it's like, it's not as easy. It's not as clear cut. It's like, oh, this is terrible and this is so much better. Well, is it better? And what does that better can mean? And she, she you know, she comes around to it. <laughs> yeah. I, w I will say I I, I don't uh, I, I would say I disagree l less with it in a sense that uh, for two points mainly first the uh, I, I will start off with a more sympathetic notion namely that I will agree that the hospitalization this horror of uh, being in a clinic and so forth and so on and especially for women uh, is 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 it, it has a very well nothing but ho utterly horrendous history for women uh, in those type of institutions. It is, I learned a bit about uh, for a different thing that I, um, uh, for for different uh, research thing that I was on, I learned about the uh, uh, women's rights situation in interbellum UK. So between World War I and World War II, and like the endless amounts of like, uh, still the lobotomies that were trying, uh, that were being committed, uh, abortions and so forth and so on. I still have nightmares about that every now and then. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm not trying to be flippant by laughing about it, but I, either I'll laugh or I'll cry. So yeah. I'm going to go for laughing. And and um, so I understand that this 
element looms large and can be depressing in this uh, in his book. And I can understand where these people are coming from. But I would argue then that um, if her life was less horrifying, if she were, say, uh, working a dead-end job in a factory or whatever, that's also depressing, but significantly less horrifying, still not great, but still, but definitely nothing close to what we're experiencing, then the future that we're seeing is still utopic by comparison. So you can easily juggle these dystopia and utopia and contrast them. And to say that you have to do either one or the other is a false binary, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And then I would uh, still argue that this is a very direct personal analysis of the situation. Uh, when we do that, we discount, for instance, the uh, abandonment of the nuclear family structure in the utopia. We are acknowledging uh, we are not acknowledging the sexual liberation in the new utopia. We are not, you know, we are then uh, leaving to uh, on the side all these important things that this utopia has uh, manifested. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I understand where they're coming from. I would still argue like to give a more sociological, broader view for it. Yes. And, and I think something uh, important as well uh, is that when those people talk about this idea of uh, Connie's present as some type of uh, dystopia is that they are kind of, they want to, I don't know, disguise or, or uh, I don't know, the idea that, well, she comes from a family that is a Latino family. And uh, at the moment, uh, and even nowadays, we, we they were talking about building a, a, a like a, a, a wall, and then what we have is that she is undergoing, especially during this the the seventies, uh, when we had this kind of like uh, turn to the right in the United States and the backlash of all the the uh, of the things related to how they would see people that did not so so she lost things and as she started losing things she kept losing things and that was not necessarily something dystopian it was realistic it was the reality yes. of a lot yes. of people there and then that's something funny because that part of the book is realist and realist yeah. in the sense that it was the reality of people and it was not an exaggeration there isn't a sense for example i didn't feel like a sense like the okay everything that is bad is going to happen to her but to people normally if they are in a bad situation normally the situation tends to get worse and yeah. that is something uh, like a tendency and i didn't feel that uh, Marge was trying to push it, like, oh, look how beautiful this future is because this present is so bad, because she was not saying this present is super bad. It, she was saying, it, it, okay, it is super bad, but it can happen. It is yeah. happening now, but like, yeah. uh, it is happening right now to people around me. And, you know, even though she was not one, the one in uh, suffering those kinds of things, she saw people suffering and she under she translated it into the character, and I didn't see any exaggeration, as some people would claim uh, that there was in this uh, part of the narrative. Yeah, um, to to add to that, like the there's a moment to, towards the the latter section of the book where we see like the alternate dystopian future that exists separate in parallel to the utopian communities, and. That part wasn't as, to me at least, it wasn't as convincing uh, as the, the ones at the start because, like, 
okay, this I get what this is doing and why this is here, and 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 I understand. But the, at the start, like to see that that as you said, it's realist. It's a realist section. Yeah. Like there's there's very little that that's like pushed or exaggerated. No, this has happened to too many fucking people, and it's it, it's here. Like it, you know, it, it, there's a uh, there's not much to say about it. Like this this happened. This happened a lot, and it's perfect point of comparison to a different kind of future that like there's sure this is a particularly terrible worst case but um there's there's nothing uncommon about it no definitely and and just taking like uh uh, uh taking a chance here because frank mentioned mm -hmm. the other future uh my second mm -hmm. question for you for you would be uh what are uh, the temporalities of the book. How many temporalities could you identify uh, on the book? Oh, you, you take this one first, Leon. Oh, no, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, if I'd have to hazard a guess, I'd say at least, um, I guess, four. Uh, the, the present we encountered first, the, the future we see most of the time, with Luciente, uh, the, uh, I mean, because we we really don't have a clear point of comparison. At, at very, it, it could be the same, but it might also not be. Uh, the future dystopian New York, and the fourth one would be when we see Luciente and the others like in active combat, where because because then we have uh, Connie back in the second future with Luciente in. In the community, and, and it's like, no, we we didn't go to fight. You might have, you must have seen another instance of time, another timeline. Um, so at least those four, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> okay, I would add one more that people normally uh, overlook. That even like uh, critics, uh, when I, I was studying like the novels and everything, people did not work like or did not see that as a separate temporality, but I did. Uh, which is the past, Connie's past, mm, Connie's yeah. youth, because she talks a lot about her childhood and not so much about her childhood, but her early adulthood. And yeah. she talks about how she was going to community college and how that was important for her. She wanted to, do, she didn't want to have a degree or, or uh, like some kind of diploma only for the sake of having it, but she wanted to learn and she wanted to be uh, present there and, and, uh, Uh, have access to that and it was taken from her she had to work yeah. otherwise she wouldn't be able to you know like uh, uh, make a living and then she gave up uh, studying but and, and even for some people like community college in the United States is a kind of like a lower kind of a, a way for you but for her it was very interesting and she talked about like her marriage and etc so for some people it would be only some flashback in order to, again, like give characterization or, or build the character better. But for me, that was a, so, something very revealing as well, because before that turn to the right that the government have in the United States in the 60s and, and uh, during that period that they were fighting, she doesn't say Connie was involved in any of those things. She was not political at all. She didn't want to be involved in those things. But at the same time, 
we could see that uh, she had a good life, or at least she had some life she she liked with things that mm -hmm. made her feel like fulfilled and etc. And she started losing those as the country was like they were reverting laws. They were, you know, like uh, making life for people that had difficult lives more difficult. And I think so. There is this also this past that they show uh, for Connie that is also interesting because it gives the, the book also this other temporality that is not so well developed, but at the same time is present there and marks this idea of, uh, of the differences. And of course, the futures, we have these three possibilities uh, or these three uh, futures that we understand as possibilities. And I guess that's something interesting as well. Uh, they are not saying we are the future, but we are a future and we are fighting to be, you know, the future that is because a lot of things, you know, like we have to fight. Uh, you are not doing the, the the job. We have to go back and, and tell you to, to do it. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to remark or note, Leon? No, no, I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, as, um, uh, do you have anything else you want to add, Elton? Otherwise I'll, 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 I'll wrap us up, I think. No, no, I, I guess. I will have one question then myself, uh, that I always struggle with. And, um, as someone who like, once again, is fascinated by the concept of utopia and has approached utopia from a non-utopic science perspective, but nevertheless with other science, um, a thing that always fascinates me and, and the conceptualization of within utopia is within the quote of like another writer that I really like is uh, China Mieville, who says mm. that we are currently living in utopia. It's just not yours. <laughs> and it's, it's that always like, I think this book is very interesting counterpoint to that. Despite me liking the guy and like liking his prose quite a bit, I think he's wrong on this count. Namely that despite a lot of, there's a class of group and people within society that are thinking, oh, everything is going fine as it is. But even this process will end badly, in my humble opinion. If you look at projectors for the future and so forth and so on, we're going to run out of things if we're going to continue this way and so forth and so on. I won't get into the details now, but <laughs> generally, even when a certain class of people is realizing their utopia, they do not have the vision to understand that this vision, um, they do not have the idea that this vision will eventually end catastrophically because they don't have that, once again, they don't have the conceptualization of this. And therefore, I think that, that this statement of, oh, we're living in utopia, it's, not just, it's just not yours, is not true because we are not living in a utopia. And just because a group of people is enjoying themselves right now, and I do think, once again, to reiterate this, utopia is not a fixed point in time in history. It's not like, oh, and we have arrived at utopia, like, it's like on your little navigation on your phone, like, oh, around this corner, there's utopia, exactly, we're so close. No, it's, it's a continuous process, a continuous struggle. And I think, I don't know, I, uh, I know how you guys feel about that. But about uh, how, how do we achieve utopia or so forth and so on? <laughs> I don't know. Feel free to go first, uh, Elton. <laughs> okay, no, I, I, I was going to say that I like one of Marge Pierce's poems because she's also a poet. And there is a poem that I translated to Portuguese as well. And it was even the reason I met her because I wanted to ask if, she, if I could possibly like translate and publish the, the poems. 
uh, and we started like developing a dialogue and I told her, oh, I study your novels and etc. And that's how we got like st started. And in this poem, she ends by saying that uh, we have to say we and know that every time we say we, we mean someone else, like someone yeah. more. Uh, and, and I think that's the idea, that the idea is to build strategies to really like uh, think collectively and do things collectively because we are unable to do that. Like uh, currently it's uh, virtually like, I'm not going to say impossible, but I'm going to say it's very difficult for yeah. people to do collective things to to work collectively they are afraid of whatever is collective it's something that you know worked a lot like very well like uh, to to make us individuals and to make us believe in individuality and um like cling to it so, so i think that's the idea to think about a we and every time like include more people in this we and that's the only way we are going to uh, approach or, or even like walk towards utopia only by doing that, uh, not as a small group, not as a community, not as a, like a, 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 an enlightened, I don't know, like a people that study utopia. Wow, congratulations, you study, you <laughs> fight for it, you are going to get there. No. Like we as a group in a small group that we are, we are never going to get there. We need uh, to, everyone has to get there. Otherwise it's, it's not going to work. Yeah. Is it going to take time? Because to, <laughs> you know, like to get everyone to agree on something, it's like uh, probably, but it's okay. Maybe eventually we can get there. Like mathematically we, we may get there. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Like I, I think like for all that, that quote, and I think that quote is insightful to some degree, I, I refuse to give up that the concept of utopia is utopia for everyone. There's no such thing as a utopia for the few. There's no such thing as a right-wing utopia. I, that's, I, that's how I personally feel about it. I, I do not, I refuse to cede that concept uh, to any other aspect because um, into all the limitations that historically the concept has been used. Uh, but I... I think there's no other way that we should strive towards understanding, creating and thinking about a utopia if it doesn't struggle or strive at the very least to include everyone. And, you know, that's one of the main things that uh, classic utopias are criticized for, that their isolation, their separation, and thus, uh, you know, the, the task that we come to, to think about it and, and to conceptualize it and work for it is that it, it involves everyone. It involves this us that is not ourselves. And without it, we're not creating any kind of utopia, utopianism, or utopic society. So, yeah, I, that's, I think that's where we... It's a good point for us to, to end on, I think. We, we, it, it's got to be collective. Any, any final thoughts, friends? It's really funny that you guys say that because... That's the one thing I always talk to first years who study political science uh, talk to, <laughs> that the classical definition within political science is an individual notion of power. And I'm like, no, that's not, you should directly move away from that. You should move <laughs> towards collective action. Like that conceptualization, that's where power lies. And yeah. you should look at 
who prevents collective action and who who gives it access. That's when you start to like really build your conceptualizations of power and like progressivism and so forth and so on. So it's really funny how like uh, despite like being maybe separated in uh, in disciplines, it still has such a broad overlap between what I've studied and I'm, I'm teaching and like so forth and so on, and what uh, you guys are saying. So I don't know. Thought it was funny. That's uh, <laughs> or like good. <laughs> Elton. No, I just want to thank you guys for having me here. It's been like a, a very interesting afternoon talking about this book. And I hope people that have never read it will get curious and, and check it out. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Like I, you know, ever ever since we, we got started talking together more and, you know, I, I found out you translated this book. Um, I was, was, you know, since then I was like, I, I got to read it. I got to get Elton on the pod. So I'm glad it's happened. It it is. It has been everything I wanted it to be. And, and now the reason we're friends is done. No, <laughs> of course not. Uh, <laughs> of course not. But uh, <clears throat> thank you, thank you so much, Elton. Thank you, Leon. As always, thank you so yes. much, Elton. Is there anything you want to plug for an international audience? Yeah, I know at, at the moment I'm not with any project that uh, is accessible I think I think it's more like uh, I, I'm I'm with this idea of bringing things here to Brazil so uh, I'm working with uh, yes some translation projects and uh, with this idea of, of uh, uh, I was inspired by this first experience even though it was very difficult because even like translating my Prisi here was a kind of struggle. Uh, and, and it was my idea, like, of, uh, uh, I had to, to really, like, go for it. We had, it was a crowdfunded project, so it was uh, not the traditional way of, like, I approached several, like, publishing houses, but big publishing houses, they did not even, like, give me a no. So it was very difficult to establish any type of dialogue. And I had to, like, I tried with a smaller uh, publishing house, and she didn't have a lot of experience with this international uh, editing and with uh, uh, she normally works with things like free access or, or, or mm. like a public domain. And then for her, it was something uh, new to work with this idea of uh, talking about copyrights and everything. And but anyway, it happened. So <laughs> I, I got very like... Uh, Inspired, and things, yes. yes, more things can happen, uh, <laughs> but sometimes it's not going to be easy, and uh, and I think uh, that's why I, I I believe like translation has this very important power to uh, I don't know to to establish some dialogues that we need to establish more, and maybe people that are controlling this type of dialogue are just like. Uh, few people and uh, that has to change and has been changing I think excellent yeah um, I think from us you know you, you can find us on whatever social that there, there is you know there's left page and, and we do we're doing a lot of different stuff in, in books and with other media in heavy media and yeah if you can and if you'd like to see some more stuff from us especially uh, you get early access to episodes and some other writing on patreon.com forward slash left page and yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you again, Elton. Um, yes. 
for coming on like it's it's been a pleasure it's been a great time and thank you so much for listening everyone take care bye bye